everybody. Good evening. Welcome to Evoke Therapy Program's broadcast. Today is Monday, Monday, November 16th, 2020. Uh, tonight, we're going to, it's really going to be about old questions from, from previous webinars. For those of you who are just tuning in, we're doing every other week where we're doing a question and answer, and then we're doing chapters from my newest book, The Audacity to Be You. And as I announced to some of you as we were coming on tonight, The Audacity to Be You, is now out on audiobook in which I narrated all of the chapters in the body of the book. The foreword was written and also narrated by J, Dr. J.D. Gill. So that is available now. So we're just going to take the questions. Malia is going to pass those on to me. You can submit new questions if you would like. The first question is, how do you tease apart your true self and the self you needed to play with your family of origin? I mean, the simple answer, answer is therapy. The simple answer is it's a process, right? That that's that's what this work is, and and so many therapeutic models are, are really trying to help you integrate the two. And so everybody has a false self. Everybody has a self that they present in certain contexts to to get what they need. They're most uh, the best chance of being accepted and valued, and 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 really not abandoned. And so the way you tease it apart is you you find this is my answer you have to find somebody somewhere where you can experiment with expressing your 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 truth who you are what you feel what you want what you believe your ideas and and that person has to accept it to to, to see it to understand it even if it seems irrational or or, or crazy um, that person will will understand it and and will connect to it. And so that's how you tease it apart is you find somebody who can see you, who can see your authentic self. I just finished an intensive yesterday. I just did a, 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 an in-person intensive. And I said this there, and I'll, I'll say this again because it happens in all contexts. So often when a client says, um, I know I shouldn't say this, or I know that this is wrong, or you might... You might say X, Y, or Z to me when I say this. I, I know in those instances, we're about to get something real and, and honest. Um, and of course, when they share that, my, my response often is that makes total sense. You know, that's a that's a deep lost truth. So, so the way you tease it out is you have to be in contexts where people aren't living according to the should and shouldn'ts, where people aren't telling you the right way to be. You know, if you read the um, the preface to the book, the foreword to the book, excuse me, you'll see J.D. Gill explain that if the therapist gives you their answers or if they're looking for the right answer, then find a new therapist. But if they're looking for the truth about what you think and feel, then you have an adequate therapist. So I think you tease it out by experimenting, by exploring. It can be other ways than therapy, but you've you've got to find those parts of yourself that you've been taught to to believe uh, are unacceptable right that are that that shouldn't be there or the way that you should feel uh, kind of takes precedence so so that's how you do it is you find yourself in a context where people are more interested in the truth than they are interested in the right answer next question somebody says i can try to imagine what it would feel like to have that one person who can truly see you and accept you as you are. For me, I believe the hardest part is allowing that person to see you and to trust they will actually accept all of you. How do you get past the fear uh, of what if they don't, of that if they don't? The risk feels too high. These are great questions, by the way. You know, you take little steps. You can, I can, I can sense somebody's ability to see my authentic self by the way they talk about other things. If they use the words should and shouldn't as they're describing people or ideas, you know you have somebody who might be limited, who might be limited in their capacity to, to see you. You know, if you ask a therapist, what, what tell me about your approach to therapy, you're going to want people who have some experience in uh, attachment theory or in analysis. In many cases, they don't have to have that be their dominant model, but they, they have to understand it. I love what David Grant said. David Grant is the, the creator of a, 
of an approach called um, brain spotting. Some of you might know about it. It's an extension or an evolution of EMDR. And because David Graham was trained in analysis, he incorporated that idea into his analytic, excuse me, into his model with brain spotting, where he said, you have to attune to the, to the client. And he actually says in his book on brain spotting, he says, if the therapist doesn't account, listen to this, folks, this is amazing. If the therapist doesn't account for a client's propensity, for, for a client's tendency to want to please the therapist, then the therapy will be inadequate. Another example, I, I talk about that with, with our therapists all the time. Understand that the most common form of resistance in therapy, you know, we think of resistance as oppositional. We think of it as, you know, refusal. The most common form of resistance is compliance. So the therapist will be tuned into your um, desire to, to, to be right and to be good. And, and they can see that. So you're listening for things that, that, that show you evidence that the therapist thinks they know the right answers and what you should conclude. So I think you, you, you find it in subtle ways. And if you don't, if you're not exposed to therapeutic models very much, you, you'll kind of discover it as you go. Tell a therapist, I'm afraid. I've had clients tell me many, many times that I've lied to you or I'm trying to please you. Of course you are. That, that's what your context taught you and reinforcing you. You don't have any experience, I say to these, these folks that, that share that. You don't have any, any experience or very, very little experience with being who you are. I said to one therapist when I was training, this was a field therapist some years ago, working with young adults, I said, be a little bit more reserved in your praise of the client and, and their accomplishments. Your excitement around them completing their assignments is suggesting to them possibly that they have to be good. So I, I think you can have discussions with clients, with, with therapists and, and, and folks. If you go to an Al-Anon or an AA meeting, or an ACOA meeting, right, a 12-step meeting, it's built into the system. Because into the system, there's no crosstalk. There's no, it's not, somebody else in the group is not supposed to talk to you. They're supposed to share their truth. And they'll have folks there that, that, are, that are running the meeting that will interrupt people if they start to give advice, if they start to, to talk directly to other participants. So you go up there, you introduce yourself, you tell your story, you end and everybody says thank you and, and claps or just acknowledges it. So finding somebody, you, you, you're allowed to pay, you can ask therapists, you can share them with them a book, a podcast, an article and say, hey, I'll, I'll pay you for your time, but I want you to read this and I want to talk about it. I have a blog, a couple of blogs on a group, what a guru therapist is and look for a therapist who looks for you takes five minutes to read, you could share that with somebody and say, what do you think about this? You know, you could share the, some ideas from the forward of, of the book. There are therapists out there who understand of all persuasions and models, for the most part, who understand that what, what psychology and therapy really is and understand that human beings are affected by their context, who understand that human beings are, are afraid to be abandoned and judged and rejected. And then that can take on a whole bunch of forms. Talking about that with your therapist, asking them questions, I, I think one of the best ways to discover if you have what I call an adequate therapist, which is a good enough therapist, is tell them what you need or tell them if you're upset by something they said or confused or frustrated, you know, tell your therapist they're talking too much or something they said from the previous session didn't work from you. And if they thank you for it, you probably have a good one. If they try to explain to you why they were doing it right and how it should be and how you've misunderstood it. And that's just your anxiety or your depression or your distorted thinking that affecting your interpretation of it. In other words, if they gaslight you, 
but but using very calm demeanor and cl and clinical language, you know you have an inadequate therapist. But but you all know this, a therapist. If you tell them I'm frustrated, I'm angry, you I was hurt by what you said. If you say that to them, an adequate therapist will honor the courage it takes to confront somebody. A therapist will um, will absolutely uh, reward that kind of risk. They'll, they'll actually know that that's the gold in therapy. Because many people don't have experiences with confronting their parents, the people they grew up with, teachers, authority figures, and having that person reward and embrace and, and, and respond to it with curiosity and compassion. You can talk to them about this. And if it's too scary to talk about it in a vulnerable way and to actually share how you feel about them, you can share it with them intellectually. Bring an article in. Bring up, bring, print up the blog I wrote on looking for a therapist who looks for you and see what they have to say about it. You're paying for the hour anyway. That's another thing. You're paying for the hour anyway. It's your hour. If their agenda or, or their theory or their model is a greater priority than what you're asking for in therapy, then you have somebody who thinks there's a right right way for you to think and be and do. So those are some thoughts. Next question. I understand the significance of healing generational trauma, but is there such a thing as generational healing, recovery? How much work do you feel is enough that your children would be less likely to pass on their trauma to their children? So again, remember, all of these things are continuums. Everybody passes on positive things to their children and everybody passes on harmful things to their children. You are a whole human being. You're not a good human being because there's no such thing. There are parts of you that are good and there are parts of you that are in pain. You know, the, 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 the poem from Khalil Gibran on good and evil, he says, you are good when you give of yourself, but you are not evil. When you clutch at things and try to take them, you're just hungry and broken and in need of healing. And so you all will pass on to your children gifts and treasures, and you'll pass on to them trauma and pain. You can't not dent your children. So I only speak of the dents and the trauma because that, that's what needs our attention. But it's valuable to think about the fact that you're going to pass on resources and gifts and wonderful things to your children. And everybody's on the continuum. There really is nobody who's purely evil and nobody who's purely good, right? We're all somewhere between those two extremes. Now, some people look really, really good and some people look really, really evil, but but everybody has a, a lot of complex parts to them. So, yeah, you, you're, you're, you're going to experience, your children will experience both they'll experience they will have the experience of having a human parent that's what your children will have the experience of a, a, a human parent and the the fantasy that we can avoid passing on trauma you know there's bigger trauma there's more chronic chronic trauma there's all kinds of trauma my favorite definition of, of trauma or, or abuse was anything less than ideal and by that measure, it's really easy to understand. Anything less than ideal, anything less than optimal. So we, we start to get away from judgments. We start to get away from fear and anxiety about being human and, and being imperfect. And that takes therapy. That takes work. That takes learning how to, learning how the nervous system is affected, learning how the brain works when it is scared or threatened or unsafe. So you will pass on both. And, and, and in this world, in the world that we're sharing together tonight, there's no shame in where you fall on that continuum. There's just no shame in it. It's what it is. And my job, even though I'm not doing therapy with all of you right now, my job in, in talking to you is to give you an experience. You know, I say this in the book later on. In a subsequent chapter, something my therapist said to me some 12, 15 years ago. She said, if you were coming in here and told me, Brad, that you were having sex with a chicken, I would assume you had a good reason and I, I would want to understand why. 
And while that simple, ridiculous idea might seem far-fetched, it's the same concept that Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, uh, what he meant when he said, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we would find in every story suffering sufficient to disarm all hostility. If we understood people, we wouldn't have enmity or, or hostility towards them or judgment toward them. We would have compassion. That's the great thing that a psychological lens can offer folks. And Abraham Lincoln said it even more simply than, than Henry Wadsworth Longfellow did. I do not like that man. I must get to know him. Because if you deeply hear and listen to somebody's story, the, the, the result is compassion. Someone asked, how do you handle the challenge of bringing your whole self to an employment environment? While I feel like I would prefer to show be more of my true self at work, it is far from the conventions of professional environment, and I am afraid it wouldn't work. You know, the way it, I'll, I'll tell you a story that happened to me very recently, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you something simple. You know, it would be nice if you had a, a boss or a supervisor, a work environment where the people running things were uh, more put together, less compromised. I had an employee, I'd said something on a phone call that, that had offended an employee not too long ago. And um, so an employee, a manager in, in our company called me and said, I, I want to talk to you about some things. And this was one of them. I didn't know it ahead of times. And, and as she told me what I had said that had hurt her or upset her, she was said, I was, I'm, I'm scared to say this. And, and when she told it to me, I said, I'm so glad that you told me. You know, thank you for, I can realize, I, I can imagine how scary it is for you to give me that feedback. And and you're right. You know, I, I said something, uh, I said something that I regret and, and, and thank you for bringing it to my attention. And I'm glad you told me. That, that's, an, that's a moment. And, and I, what if I had reacted poorly? What if I had defended it? What if I had explained to her why you should, why she should feel and think differently about it? And that would be coming from a place of insecurity about me needing to be a good person and a good boss. And eventually I would end up making her feel bad or, or not heard or, or crazy. And I said this to my team recently, you know, eventually she might say, I don't want to be around a boss whose ego is so fragile that I can't tell him how I feel and what I think. And if he makes a mistake or upsets me. So how do I reconcile it? I mean, I think you all know from, from your work experience that you have bosses that some are, are more or less compromised. And everybody can relate to being in a situation where I might have to leave this situation and, and or I, I have an amazing boss or, or somewhere in between, right? And the answer is you get to decide. And yes, all of our bosses, that includes me. I don't have time to be all of my my employees therapist. I can't do that. I'm not, that's not my job, but I can have enough ego strength to admit mistakes, to, to listen to feedback, to understand where somebody's coming from. Yes. I'm, I'm eventually going to lay down some guidelines and some rules and there's going to be some accountability work. Absolutely. But it's not coming from a da damaged fractured, um, place it's coming from this is we have to kind of we have a product we have a thing a widget to sell and we're going to do it so is it too far and you get to answer the question is your work environment and your boss so compromised that you need to find another place to live can you tolerate it and and i would even say in our company where we try to practice what we call organizational health i i brad reedy one of the one of the partners and the executive clinical director i can't be all of my employees therapists but i can i can avoid humiliating them i can avoid gaslighting them i can avoid lashing out at them when i feel threatened right i can do those things and sometimes when i stumble and fall i can say i'm sorry so you get to decide where on that continuum your work environment falls and if it is tolerable for you or not.
but everybody can relate to the at least the idea if you haven't had the experience of needing to quit a, a job because it's too toxic. The next comment says, not a question, just a comment on how much of a difference it made for me to stop trying to get it right. And the permission to just be human um, has made. I've been able to make decisions based on my comfort level alone, express concerns and ask my son to help me out and just be myself. Revolutionary for me. This morning, my son offered a hug today and thanked me for being his mom. Thank you for the constant messaging that is finally sinking in. I was talking to somebody recently about this idea that they had shared uh, the podcast with somebody else uh, in the hopes uh, to help that loved one, that, that one that they cared about, kind of understand the transformation that they were going through. And their loved one responded like many do by saying, this is crazy. I don't get what he's saying. It's crazy. And I think a lot of clients, many clients, probably the majority of clients have told me, and some of you are, are on here because I know some of you, when you first started hearing this work at Evoke, you thought this doesn't make sense. I have long-term clients who have told me when you first said X, Y, or Z at the beginning of our therapy, I thought you were crazy. But something drew me in and I kept listening to the podcast or I was at a hopeless point, so I needed to hear something different. And eventually it all makes sense. But it's hard, right? It's hard to have some kind of awakening in this process like many of you have and then to go back and talk i mean even just the experience of having a child struggle to the extent that you're willing to evolve evoke in your life in your family's life your child's life just that starts to separate you out from some people you know something that some people don't having a child uh, getting married teaches you something that people who don't have those experiences don't know in the same way, at the same level, with the same kind of quality. So, yeah, the, the, the work is when people tell me that it's crazy or it doesn't make sense, I get it. I've been there. I've shared with you many times the experience of talking to my therapist and some of the things she said in the early days of working with her. I thought she was off or, or wasn't getting it or was playing some kind of mind game with me. And now I look back and everything she said in those early years is obvious to me. So if we're going to, like Einstein says, you can't solve a problem from the same level of consciousness in which it was created. If we're going to move to a different level of consciousness or what Joseph Campbell calls a, a fundamental transformation or transformation of consciousness, it's not going to make sense at first. But we're, we're, we're being invited into a higher level. That's why storytelling and metaphor can be so effective. That's why so many times when somebody asks me a question, I'll tell them a story. And part of what I'm trying to say is it's hard. In fact, Joseph Campbell said this, explanation falls short. And so it's better at times, Campbell says, to evoke an emotion through a story or a metaphor. That's a more powerful way of teaching. And you'll know this because some of the greatest gurus who ever worked on, whoever walked on planet Earth are, are use parables and allegories and stories. I, I talk about this in the introduction uh, or the first chapter of the book. I, I say this idea that prophets aren't necessarily sharing a history lesson or, or for telling the future. They're telling stories to help us understand the layers of life. And the great thing about a story is it meets you where you're at, right? I could tell a story or use a simple metaphor. And because it's told in story form, everybody on this broadcast, listening to this broadcast, can relate to it on one level. If life is like a song, I'll just make that up. If life is like a song, there's an infinite number of ways that that's true. There's also ways that that's not true. So, um, yes, just responding to your comment. It wasn't even a question. Somebody said, you have said that kids, young adults read Viktor Frankl, the Viktor Frankl book, Man's Search for Meaning. Can you talk about why that book was chosen? You know, ultimately that book was chosen in part because it, 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 it teaches the idea that's on the, the cover of my first book we, we, from, from the book. 
there's a little, we had to get permission to use it, but it says, when we are no longer able to change the situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. Viktor Frankl was a prisoner in a concentration camp. There are a few people who can claim that they have worse circumstances than that. His family was pulled away from him and, and murdered, I believe. The people that he loved were tortured and murdered. He was in a camp where, I don't have to go into the details, a concentration camp where atrocities were being committed. So the reason we use that book is because it teaches this idea that ultimately, at the end of the day, the only thing I can control is myself. But it comes from somebody that that very few, if if maybe nobody, can say, well, he didn't have it that bad. You know the talk about privilege these days? There's so much talk about privilege. And I can't tell you, I cannot tell you how many clients nowadays start to tell me something about their life, about some pain or sadness or grief or hurt that they have, and they will preface it with, I know I should be grateful for my privilege. I know other people have it worse. So there's this, this culture now that we're not even allowed to feel our pain because we should be grateful. I've shared the concept before that telling somebody that they should be grateful because other people have it worse is like telling somebody they shouldn't be happy because other people have it better. So when a client prefaces what they're going to share with me with, I should be grateful, I shouldn't be complaining, my response is, this is a place where it's okay. You don't have to qualify your pain with me in that way. And so Viktor Frankl's message is, 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 is central to our, our understanding of mental health and addiction processes, which is ultimately, at the end of the day, you grew up with human parents, you've experienced trauma, all of those are real. And at the end of the day, the, the meaning that you make out of your life is your responsibility. But most importantly, that, that idea comes from an author in, in the book by Viktor Frankl. It comes from an author who experienced what most people could never, um, could never say, he didn't have it that bad or I have it worse. That's why one of the reasons why I think it's so effective. And it's profound and intelligent and, 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 and wonderful. And it's a story. You know, half of it is a story. And young people respond to stories really well, better than self-help books. So the fact that there's a lot of story to it, it it's more accessible to young people. How do you know, somebody says, how do you know if you're being authentic or not? How can the client know? These are tough questions you guys are asking me tonight. Um, it's, it's, it's a process. You know, I remember years ago when my therapist said to me, she was quoting D.W. Winnicott, who said that the false self brings the real self into therapy. In other words, the reason we enter therapy is not, the, the deepest drive about why we need therapy, what therapy is in the beginning, it becomes something different all the time. And I remember, like I've shared earlier on this broadcast, that I was offended by that statement because I said, I I think my real self wanted therapy. And, and she, of course, apologized and to me and was very kind to me when I said that. But what I've learned since she first said that is I've evolved. and And I could not have articulated what therapy is and what it means to me and what I get out of it, I could not have articulated it back then. I thought therapy was a place to problem solve. I thought it was for tool building. I thought it was about, I thought it was about becoming more clever in the world in such a way that I could manipulate through love and kindness, of course. I could manipulate my circumstances around me so that I would be happier. And while some of those things, you know, problem solving does happen in therapy and skill building does happen in therapy, therapy is a different experience with a different context. And you've heard the phrase, maybe, the fish is the last one to discover water. 
how can you know what water is if you've never felt not water? And so therapy, that's the same thing that traveling to another country can do for you. You make it to another country and to another culture and the things that you took for granted that you couldn't see about your own context and culture start to come to life. So therapy is a different experience. It's a different experience of, of, of yourself. So often the, the, the ability to recognize authenticity in oneself is something that we develop over time. And if you, if you find, you know, I'll tell you another story. I was working with a young man. He had been in our program and I came to take over a case at one point. And I was trying to get some backstory from him. He'd been with us for a couple of weeks and I won't get into all the circumstances. But, but I came in, I was going to be his therapist. And I asked him about his family, about his background, about his parents. And he qualified everything. He said, I know I need to be accountable. And he said, I don't want to be a victim. And, and, and I, I know I'm responsible, right? All of his answers had, had qualifiers like that. And I said to him, it's okay. You don't have to be right. I'm fine if you just bitch and complain and tell me the story and I'll listen. Yes, we'll get to accountability and responsibility. We'll get there. But you get to tell your truth, your story. And I said to him, I can tell that you've had a lot of therapy because we weren't his first therapy program. I said, I can tell that you've had enough therapy that you've been told by people about how you weren't being accountable, how you weren't being responsible, how you were playing the victim or blaming. And I said, that's not a very safe world to live in. That's not really therapy. And it evoked, we, we foster accountability. We teach it. But, but hopefully it's built upon the foundation of being a safe environment to tell us whatever you think and feel, even if it's quote unquote wrong. I learn more about somebody telling me a lie sometimes than I do about the truth, than I do, do if they just told me, excuse me, I, I learn more about thing, them telling me a lie than anything. Let people exaggerate. You know, you, you start to understand people's exaggerations, their, their misinterpretations, their 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 fears if you listen close enough and that's what that's why therapy is different and so finding authenticity is a process but you i don't know how to do it on your own my experience is you need to to work that out with somebody else so you find that out in a context with a safe empathic other and you start to draw distinctions between your authentic self and your false self. I think the book by Alice Miller that, that talks about the drama of the gifted child, the subtitle being the search for the real self. I think that can give you, I remember reading that. I, I've said this before. I read it for the first time and gosh, it must've been around 1993 or so. And I remember reading it and I remember thinking when I read it, I thought, this is ruining my life. I realized that there were unconscious ideas, feelings, and experiences running beneath the surface in me and in everybody that I had no clue about. And I remember stopping and thinking, I can't put the tube back in the toothpaste on this one. It's there. And I know it. I don't know all of it and all of the details. I don't know what it is, but it's there. I said this to the intensive group this weekend. If you sat in a, in a boardroom, uh, in a boardroom with a bunch of board members at, at an office, it's just everybody's inner child and trauma that, that's, that's act, you know, that's being discussed, being, it's a driving force, right? You can see in our political dialogue, our, our social media dialogue, people's wounds and trauma are spilling all over the place all the time. And those venues, the boardroom, the social media, the news, those aren't designed to teach people about authenticity. And that's why therapy or, or some of these free support groups that we talk about from NAMI or from Al-Anon, that's why they're so important. Because that's the place that's teaching you about being an authentic and a real self. And, you know, surround yourself with, with people who are on the, on the path 
who are trying to tell the truth about themselves. And and listen to them. You know, you go to an Al-Anon meeting or an AA meeting, and people are telling some pretty dark things about themselves. And it'll be different to you. And hang out with them for a while, and it'll start to rub off. Someone says, our son, our son is in aftercare. He'll be 18 in one month, and Adam, and he will sign out. How do we respond if, in fact, he leads, leaves? Well, I don't know how you respond. It's, 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 it's too important and too nuanced of a question to, to offer any shoulds or shouldn't. Here's the, here's the deal, folks. I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again. I was teaching at a conference about codependency. That was my topic. It was assigned to me. And in the middle of my conference, my, the middle of my presentation, somebody raised their hand, a psychologist, and said, how can you be suggesting that we make this suggestion to a parent to kick their child out of the house, their addicted child out of the house, when the possibility is that that child could die? And I said, I would never recommend that to a parent. I said, what I would do is I would help them to heal their codependency and then they would figure out what to do. My, I know the question I get asked over and over and over again is what should I do? And I can't answer it. I don't, I don't even know how to answer it. And it's not my job. And it's too important for me to be responsible for something that's a potential life or death. So my job with parents is to help them to heal, to become aware of why they're doing what they're doing. You know, I'll say to somebody, somebody says, well, I, I make the recommendation that a child go on to a therapeutic program after a vote, for example, or that you attend Al-Anon when you get home, whatever the recommendation is, right? And somebody says to me, well, I, I want to bring him home. I want to bring her home or I don't want to go to a meeting. And then I say, tell me more about that. That's the magic. Tell me, tell me where you're coming from. And then we talk about the issue at play. Well, I don't want to go to an Allen on me because that's the place where people just go to, to complain and seem to stay stuck. I can work with that idea. Or I want to take my child home after a vote because they deserve another chance or I feel guilty or I want to reward them or they're going to not love me or they'll never forgive me. See, we can deal with all those ideas. We can talk about the distortion and the idea that, that if, I, uh, if I don't give my child what he wants and he, he won't love me or forgive me, we can deal with that wound because that's a, that's a child, that's a parent's wound talking. And we can work on healing that. And we can work on the danger of, 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 of enlisting your child in, in, the, in the task, in the service of healing your childhood wound and how that can be harmful for both of you. But I'm not going to fight you on what you're doing, even if I am making, making recommendations. So you just figure your, you know, you just work on yourself, work on your project. That's the deal. You make a shift. All you make a shift from thinking that other people are the problem to you're the problem, and you're free. You 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 get rid of the illusion that that badness and evil is out there. Like Carl Jung said, the only devils worth fighting are the ones running inside of our own heads. That that we make our husbands or our wives or our children the problem. They're just being them. Our lack of serenity and, and, and peace in our lives is our responsibility. If you go to Al-Anon, you learn that. Your serenity is your responsibility. Your serenity is your responsibility. But unfortunately, most of us were trained, it's partly wired into us, to believe that the problem is out there. And that other people, that if other, every, everybody in our life changed their behavior, we wouldn't feel so unhappy. So 
you 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 work on the project, which is you, and and then you make different decisions, and then different people come into your lives, and some people leave your life. But when you're becoming an authentic, genuine, loving, capable self, if you're making progress along that that path. The whole world starts to shift just a little bit around you. So what do you do if your son is threatening to leave? I, I don't know. We would have a, a discussion. We would have a dialogue about understanding where you're coming from and why you're making the decisions you're making and what's going into considering it. And are you operating from a place of, of, of trauma or, or from healing? And we would work on that. And then you would decide. See, what you do with your children is too important for, for you to, um, to abdicate yourself from the responsibility of making the choice. Even at the end of the day, it's your decision. You know, part of my work, part of these, these podcasts are to help you all realize it's your life. And sometimes you need to figure things out the way you need to figure them out. And it's my job to, to support you to, to get there. See, when, when people have made a decision that seems to me, at least from my vantage point, to be contrary to what, what recommendations would suggest, you know, contrary to, to clinical thinking, my response is, I want to be there for you. Because if it does go south, and I might be predicting it will, I want to be the one that you call. When you're struggling, I want to be the resource. It's the same thing I teach parents. You want to be with your children in such a way, especially as they become adults, that they call you when you're there in crisis, when they've hit bottom. And for you to do that, for you to be that person, for me to that be that person for my clients, you've got to be safe. Not smug, not, not responding with I told you so, but with compassion. I'm so sorry. And, and believe me, I've had clients do things that I didn't think would work, and they worked out fantastic. And I've had clients do things that I thought would be would work out just perfectly, and they've still struggled. They've still r run into some significant boundaries and walls. So my job is to be there for you, to support you, and to support a process. See, our, our expertise is not in knowing your truth and your answers. We are experts, but not on you and your answers. We are experts at creating a process and a context where you discover your most authentic self, your most capable, authentic, courageous, loving, and clear self. That's our expertise. I wrote an article because so many questions are, 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 it's the chapter we're on, but I wrote an article and my wife and I wrote it together, actually. Um, I think the title is um, Psychology and Therapy is the, the main title. And then there's this big, long subtitle. So if you just Google Brad Reedy, Brad Michelle Reedy and uh, Psychology versus Therapy, you'll find the article. Um, and it, it talks about this, this idea and how therapy can help us discover. As we get to the chapter on therapy later on in this book, and we learn what therapy is and how it helps to support and foster our, 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 the discovery of our authentic selves, some of this will be more clear. Someone says, if the idea of should or shouldn't is removed, then what would be the moral compass for an individual or group community? What if dropping the concept of should leads to deviant behaviors, then how to handle such behaviors? That's the fear, right? It's the only guardrails we know. There are two things that become the moral compass when you get rid of should and shouldn't. Love, maybe a couple more than just two. Love, connection, empathy, and teaching people how to feel. Everybody knows that some of the most important truths they've ever discovered came when they were the, when they were willing to get rid of should and shouldn't. 
There are rules about what you should and shouldn't do that if you followed, it would ruin your life. You know that. Everybody knows that. And it can get messy when you take the guardrails away. People often act out once they, they abandon should and shouldn't. But if they have a, a process and they keep evolving, that's part of, of getting to a place where it comes from authenticity. I, I actually don't think there is any morality in should and shouldn't. I, I think that should and shouldn't is, is, is organized around supporting a fragile ego that you need to be good or I need to be good. So if I'm doing something to my children or to my wife because I should or shouldn't, I'm not being moral. I'm just being trying to be good. But but love is something different. Compassion, empathy is something different. And how do you teach children morality if not what should and should? You, you teach them how to feel. In other words, you teach them how to be who they are. You teach people how to feel. And here's the, here's the magic pixie dust. When you teach somebody how to feel, they recognize feelings in others. And they want to be loving and compassionate toward those people. But yeah, shouldn't, shouldn't are, are, are spiritual bypasses. And there's so many examples in history and in our own lives where shouldn't, shouldn't, the, the dominant messages of, of shouldn't, shouldn't ruin people. Millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of people. And, you know, Renee Brown talks about this in one of her famous talks. She says to her therapist, she says, I think I'm having a nervous breakdown. And her therapist says, I think it's a spiritual awakening. And people who are in therapy will look worse to a lot of people as they make progress. You will find as you develop a new way of parenting and relating to people that, that many people in your, your previous context will tell you that you're doing it wrong. My therapist constantly tells me that in raising her son, everybody around her thought she was doing it wrong. And it took a great deal of fortitude and commitment and patience to follow the course that we're, that we're talking about tonight. Next question. In your experience, what is the best way for a parent to deal with, an emotion, with the emotional ups and downs of a child in wilderness or RTC? More so the downs. Um, take a step back. Realize that the greatest lessons in life are often with come during and with the struggles and the mistakes. You know, I spend a lot of my time as a therapist doing parent coaching at Evoke with helping parents realize that the highs aren't that high and the lows aren't that low. Right. And that what we discover is that there's great value in the detours and the regression and um, the mistakes. But 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 to hold space for that, those ideas that I just shared, you've got to have a, a reduced fight or flight response. Because if our fight or flight response is heightened, if we have anxiety, right? That's what that is. If we have anxiety, then then downs are going to feel like catastrophes. Missteps or mistakes are going to feel like disasters. Detours are going to feel like the most horrendous thing in the world. But if our if our anxiety is is managed, is is worked on, and our and our nervous system is relaxed a little bit more then we can look at ups and downs like the texture of life. So it's all about fear. You know, fear is the enemy. Fear, I say, is the devil. It's not the fear of something. It's the fear itself. And, and fear and love, you know, those are the two primordial forces in the, the emotional universe. And then they're relatively exclusive of each other. 
Where there is fear, there is no love. And where there is love, there is no fear. That's what Joseph Campbell discovered in his exhaustive study of, of mythology and culture. Is that these, you know, the, in different religions, they take on different things, different names, different archetypes. But Darth Vader, because Star Wars is based on Joseph Campbell, the, the, the dark side is fear and control. Fueled by anger, right? Covering up pain and sadness and powerlessness. Yoda, or, or the Force as it's called in Star Wars, is love. I always say this, how did Darth Vader deal with grief? Well, he tried to control everything. How did Yoda deal with grief? And the answer is he felt it and he cried. And in Western civilization, we've 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 tried to get rid of the, the, the unpleasant things. Right? Pain is bad, sadness is bad, medication will take it away. But in therapy, it's kind of a reintegration that. Pain is a teacher. It's a friend. A friend said to me one time when I was avoiding one, I was avoiding a mutual friend because his daughter was dying. And it was overwhelming for me. His 12-year-old daughter was dying. And I, I, I was just avoiding him. And, and I was discussing this with, with a mutual friend, a, another friend. And he said to me in the gentlest of way, he said, but isn't the pain that you feel inextricably connected to the love that you have? And therefore, you can be grateful for your pain because it's connected to your love. The only way to not feel pain is to not love and to not care. When I was getting advice from an ultra runner, when I was running marathons and triathlons, he said to me, when you're feeling a pain or a discomfort in your body, focus on it. Don't avoid it. Avoiding the, the, the pain will cause an injury. And if the pain represents an injury, you need to stop running. And you need attention. My daughter was at a at a at a at a trainer. We were we were working out together back in the day. And he stopped her. We were running sprints. And he stopped my adult daughter and he said, What's going on? And she says, My knee is hurting. And he said, I don't want you to run unless you can run without a limp. Because you're going to get injured. And that's really what your children are here for. They're learning how to feel everything. What they were doing before is trying not to feel the bad stuff. So ups and downs are a part of life. And we learn to see the richness and the pain and the sadness and the injury as much as we see the gift and the ups. Someone says, are you able to help find the kind of therapist you describe? I'm feeling frustrated after spending years and endless money without finding the kind of therapist you recommend. We have a group of therapists at Evoke who do outpatient therapy. So you can contact, you can go to our website. We call it coaching. Or you can contact Travis, our clinical director for our intensives, Travis at EvokeTherapy.com. That's a place that you can go to. Um. Look for attachment-based therapists. Attachment-based therapists believe that the priority is to see and understand the client and give them a competing experience for, for their attachment wounds. Therapists that are trained in analysis also have that inclination. Or you can contact Travis at evoketherapy.com or do some of the other things that I've said. But it's hard, yeah. And, and people tell me all the time, you know, through some of our work, it happened at the intensive the, this week. They say some of the stuff that we talk about at Evoke, nobody talks about and they've never heard it. But immediately when they hear it for the first time, they feel something qualitatively different that draws them in. And if they listen long enough, like I said, it begins to make perfect sense to them. So I get it. Most it's hard to find a good therapist. So we're trying to offer therapists to you all who are trained in this model. Travis at evoketherapy.com. Someone says, my life has changed going to an Al-Anon, going to Al-Anon and ACA. And I was thrilled that Evoke talks about 12-step principles. However, the concept of a higher power, 
of your understanding is the basis of 12 steps and giving up control. How do you apply the concepts at Evoke without the use of prayer? Um, I suppose our, our view about higher power is broad enough that we don't think that there's one way <clears throat> to access it. So a higher power can be, you know, they say sometimes in AA that, uh, that, that God stands for a group, a group of drunks, G-O-D, a group of drunks. Um, you know, some people will talk about the universe being their higher power or virtually just anything being a higher power, the moon. Just this understanding that you don't have all the answers and that there's something in life, some design that, that, that you're a part of and that you can't quite see and totally comprehend. So um, we use a lot of meditation and, and in meditation, people can pray. Um, we, we, prayer is, is, is one kind of meditation. You know, I, I read that, that prayer is not so much about changing God's mind it's about changing us, right? We get into a, 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 a relationship with ourselves. We get into a, a stance, a, a, a perspective that we don't have all the answers. One of my friends in AA told me a long time ago that the difference between God and him is that God never thinks that he's him. Or in other words, the difference between me and God is God never thinks that he's me. You know, when we're operating from a, a fear mindset and a control mindset, we think we can control and protect everybody. We think it's up to us. And the idea of a higher power is really about surrender. So there's there's so many ways to think about and access and have a relationship with a higher power. And prayer is one of those ways. Meditation is another way. A lot of people find access to their to the divine through through a, a lot of experiences. I find my religious experiences working with clients. When I'm sitting with a group of people in pain and they're telling their authentic truth, I'm filled with love and compassion and peace. That's why I like Al-Anon and ACA, because it does that for me. So I think there's just so many vehicles and so many ideas, but but they all kind of set around center around the concepts here. Looks like the, that all the questions, comments we have, Malia? Someone says, I'm struggling with my child's aftercare program. Although I get that the process is much slower and they are experiencing challenges with COVID, they seem to be dropping a lot of balls. I'm struggling with trying to be patient with their stumbles, accountable about my own anxiety and my kid being away and feeling powerless and also expecting them to be accountable to the program I signed up for. How do I get that need from them? You complain. Here's what I would do. Complain as much as you want to. And then say to them, if you think this is about my anxiety, I want to listen to it. I always talk about this with my clients. Like I, I own a program, so I wear two hats. I call this the, the two hat idea. One hat is I, I'm in charge of making sure that programming and customer service is at the highest level. And the other hat is that I'm a therapist. I'm the executive clinical director at Evoke, or in some cases, the primary therapist. So when somebody comes to me with a complaint, my response is, let me, let me address the, 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 the practical nature of your complaint. And are you open to the, the therapeutic process? So I, I think you've got, I think you all deserve to ask difficult questions, to ask hard questions and have intelligent answers. That's what I think. So in other words, when I've, I've had about 1,100 clients on my caseload in Willis Therapy, I saw it as my responsibility for parents to be comfortable with the process, which includes me fixing things that are wrong and apologizing for mistakes because we make mistakes. And, and, and I need to, we need to fix things that are wrong. 
But if they're always defensive and there's no dialogue and there's no accountability and I get marginalized all the time, that's a problem. One of the lessons that I learned in being a parent to a child in a program is, I'll take one more question after this, Malia, is that I had to try, I had to give up trying to be a good client. And I had to be an honest client. And it gave my my therapist, which he rose to the challenge, the opportunity to work with me. So talk to, to your, your contact, your therapist. If you have a consultant, involve them because they can they can distinguish between your anxiety and legitimate aspects where a program needs to be accountable for their program and services and what they've offered. Last question. Our daughter is at Evoke now. Can we tell our eager to come home daughter that if she works hard and finishes her junior year in the therapeutic boarding school, she can come home to give her the motivation and hope? You can do anything you want. That's my first answer. But the second answer is you don't have to give kids a, a, a guideline and a carrot. And, and part of the process when kids stop looking at the finish line, they're closer to being ready to come home. Life is a journey. And, 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 and deadlines and finish lines can help us get through some of the tough times. But as you all know so well, there is a fallacy in the idea that we ever arrive. So my answer in general, this is very vague is tell your daughter that you're that you're working on it as fast as you can. And that she'll come home when you're ready for her to be home. Which includes your work, but it also includes your your perspective on her work. And I think if you lay it out too simply, it can get in the way of the journey. Cuz some people learn to hold their breath and, and it's those students who say, I'm a little bit nervous about coming home. And I wasn't happy there anyway. Right? So when I'm happy here in wilderness, when I'm happy here in a therapeutic boarding school, that's it, right? Then I'm ready to come home. Not happy like everything's perfect and, and some kind of Pollyannish version, but it's okay. And coming home worries me a little bit. That's real. All right. I'll go through our upcoming. By the way, folks, I just ran another intensive. And I'll tell you this. It's the most beautiful thing I get to do in life. We have amazing. Travis Slagle is on with us tonight. He's an amazing clinical director. He's running the next one in person in December, the 2nd through the 6th. We have online options that are more affordable, that are, are, are uh, <clears throat> a shorter commitment of time. <coughs> Excuse me. So I strongly encourage you. And I will tell you, everybody at the intensives virtually every time is nervous and barely gets themselves there. And at the end, they, they say, it's the safest place I've ever been. And I'm so glad I didn't opt out. If you want to do your work, if you want a deep dive, if you want a therapy accelerator, if you want a, a therapy jumping off point, I believe in the intensives. I've done many myself as a client and so has my family and many of our managers at Evoke. So I, I, I can't tell you how strongly I believe in it. I encourage you to, to seek it out. Email intensives at evoketherapy.com. We have Pursuits Adventure Trips customized. You can use them for in-between programs. You can use them for a family refresher, a reconnection, sober fun. Um, it's, it's fun and, and, and adventure trips and fishing and kayaking and mountain biking and skiing and snowshoeing with a, with a therapeutic foundation or, or, or support to it. If you want to, we have online support groups for our intensives alumni. The next one is December 8th at 6 p.m. And then our online parent support groups, all of this is available on the website, is November 19th. That's in three days. November 19th at 6.30 p.m. You can also contact Malia at evoketherapy.com for more information. We ask all current parents to go to six 12-step support groups, any combination of Al-Anon, CODA, Families Anonymous, Adult Children, also, refugerecovery.org and nonme.org 
are great resources. All of these broadcasts are available on the pod, on your podcast app, or you can go to soundcloud.com. Just search Finding You and Evoke Therapy Podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram, both Evoke Therapy and Evoke Therapy Intensives, or on Facebook. You can find both of our programs. Uh, you can go to the Evoke Family Foundation at evokefamilyfoundation.org, an organization that helps people who can't afford therapy, and also our blog. Like I announced earlier, the Audacity to Be You in my voice is finally out. Go to Amazon or Audible.com. Um, in fact, if you don't, if you're not a member of Audible, your first book is free. So essentially, it's free. Um, or iTunes, The Audacity to Be You. The 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 forward is 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 written and read by Dr. J J D Gill, and the rest of it is written and read by myself. Also, The Journey of the Heroic Parent is available on Amazon and Audible. Also, so the next webinar will be the 18th. Two nights from now, we'll be discussing Chapter Three. Finding Others, The Audacity to Be You, Chapter 3, Finding Others. And like I said, every other time, question and answer, and then the next chapter out of the book. Thank you so much for your questions, for joining me. I hope this is a helpful point of contact. Take care, and I'll talk to you in a couple days. Bye-bye.